Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. Last week, the stock market eked out a small gain despite a rough start Monday and shaky finish Friday. What's behind the market volatility? Next, Congress repeated their temporary budget solution with the debt ceiling. Now we have a temporary reprieve on both until December 3rd. What then? Third, the biggest bust last week was the September employment report released Friday. Economists expected 500,000 jobs would be added, but we saw far less. What happened? After that, we'll take a deep dive into the employment and labor numbers to take a look at what's really happening behind just the headline unemployment rate and job creation numbers. What are some of the varying demographic impacts, and what are the longer-term implications? Now let's talk about the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Last week, the stock market got off to a rough start, but managed to eke out a gain, up 0.8% for the week and now up nearly 2% for the month of October, following September's sell-off. On Monday, Facebook's six-plus-hour outage drove its stock to sell off by more than 5% and took took much of the market with it. The market recovered those losses over most of the rest of the week after Congress reached a short-term deal on the debt ceiling. The country now has a temporary reprieve from the risk of default, at least until December 3rd when we could face the same negotiations all over again. Treasury yields continued a steady march higher. Investors are beginning to be more concerned that inflation may not just be transitory, as the Fed has alleged for most of 2021. And with the unemployment rate now at 4.8%, as reported Friday, and inflation continuing to rise, it's all but a certainty that the Fed will move forward with its plans to taper asset purchases, the first phase at reducing accommodative monetary policy before the end of 2021. The 10-year Treasury yield ended the week at 1.612%, its highest level since May. One thing Monday's Facebook outage thrusts into the spotlight just how top-heavy our market indices have become. Over the last 25 years, the top five companies in the market cap-weighted S&P 500 have averaged about 13% of the weight of the total index. Today, the top five companies, including both classes of Google shares, account for over 22% of the index. This is even higher than during the peak of the tech bubble, when the top five names represented 16% of the index, and weren't all tech stocks either. This is a reflection of the market dominance of these companies in our current economy, but it also makes the market index more concentrated, more volatile, and with higher exposure to potential looming increased regulation and social media especially. So what alternatives are there? You can take a look at broader indexes like Total Market or the Russell 3000 with far more names. You can also look at mid-cap and small-cap indexes, like the Russell 2000, which shifts exposure away from more concentrated large-cap names entirely. And you can also look at equal-weighted indexes instead of market-cap-weighted ones, where all companies get equal weight, diminishing the weight of large-cap names. 
Next up, on the political front, last week I updated you on the passage of a temporary budget measure to fund the government through early December, avoiding a shutdown. Congress has now done something similar with the debt ceiling. With the October 18th deadline looming, the date at which Treasury Secretary Yellen estimates the government will run out of cash to pay its bills if it cannot issue more debt, last week the Senate reached an agreement on a temporary measure to raise the debt ceiling. Republican senators agreed to stand down and not filibuster and allow the measure to pass with the 50-48 to vote. Two Republican senators were absent. The bill allows for a $480 billion increase in the debt ceiling, which is expected to keep things funded through December 3rd. The measure passed the House of Representatives on Tuesday. This now sets a new deadline of December 3rd for both raising the debt ceiling and passing the fiscal year 2022 budget. That leads me to the latest on the $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation bill. The latest here continues to be some movement and acknowledgement that the price tag is too high to pass as is, but last week things were relatively quiet on the Hill as to any specific changes. We continue to monitor and stay tuned as negotiations continue to see what's in, what goes, and what tax changes will get thrown out to. Now for September employment numbers. If only given the headline, the September employment situation report might sound pretty good. Total non-form payroll employment rose by 194,000 jobs in September, and the unemployment rate fell by 0.4 percentage points to just 4.8%, both signs potentially that the labor market is improving. But economists expected there to be 500,000 jobs added, and the decline in the unemployment rate? It wasn't because unemployment improved as much as the labor force shrunk more than anticipated. To recap, the lockdowns associated with the pandemic in early 2020 created the largest employment contraction our economy has ever experienced. We lost more than 22 million jobs in just two months over March and April of 2020 half of which were quickly recovered in the five to six months that followed. The next five million jobs recovered have come at a slower pace, and in recent months, we've seen the rate of recovery slow yet again. Through September 2021, we remain five million jobs short of pre-pandemic peak employment levels. So why does the labor market keep missing economists' expectations? Why do there seem to be help-wanted signs everywhere, but lingering unemployment and more people opting out of the labor force altogether? That's this week's Deep Dive. To better dissect this month's employment report, I want to explain a few things about how the data is collected, the various terms, and the calculations used. First, let's start with the weekly jobless claims data. Weekly jobless claims data is based on actual filings for and recipients of unemployment benefits. Initial claims are people newly filing for unemployment benefits, and continued claims are those continuing to collect benefits. It is the closest we have to real-time unemployment data as numbers are reported weekly. The shortcoming in looking at just unemployment benefits claims is that not everyone is eligible for benefits so it does not fully capture the total unemployment picture. That brings us to the monthly employment situation report. 
This data is compiled based on two separate surveys, a household survey and an establishment survey. The household survey is a sample of about 60,000 eligible households conducted by the Census Bureau for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It collects information on the labor force, overall employment, and unemployment. The establishment survey is collected by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The BLS collects data each month from the payroll records of a sample of non-agricultural business establishments. Every month, they survey about 144,000 businesses and government agencies, representing nearly 700,000 individual work sites, in order to provide detailed industry data on employment, hours, and earnings of workers on non-farm payrolls. This sample represents about one-third of all non-farm payroll jobs. The data for both the household survey and payroll data for the establishment survey is typically collected around the 12th of the month. While surveys of this grade a number tend to have low sampling errors and high confidence intervals, some of the seasonality adjustments made to the data, which try to normalize for things like summer jobs and school calendars and holiday hiring, have become muddled by the impacts of the pandemic, which disrupted some historical seasonality patterns. Another potential shortcoming in economic downturns, more workers than normal become discouraged and may fall into long bouts of unemployment. By the survey's definition, you are only classified as unemployed and part of the labor force if you have, quote, made specific active efforts to find employment in the four weeks prior to the survey. If you aren't actively looking for work, you aren't considered unemployed. And if you aren't considered unemployed, and are not currently employed, you are also not counted as part of the labor force. Now that you better understand the terminology, let's delve into some of the nuances a little more. Despite weaker than expected job growth in September, the unemployment rate declined more than expected, dropping 0.4% to 4.8%. But this wasn't driven by the number of unemployed declining as much as it was driven by a decline in the labor force. Remember the definition of unemployed and labor force? The unemployment rate is calculated by dividing the total unemployed by the labor force. Unemployment can improve not only by people actually gaining jobs, but also by people opting out of the labor force entirely. And we are seeing that happen. Relative to the pre-pandemic peak in December of 2019, the civilian labor force has declined by 3.2 million people, and women represent a disproportionate majority of the decline, 2 million, or 62% of the total. The U6 rate captures some of that impact by including people, quote, marginally attached to the labor force as well. For September 2021, the U6 rate was 8.5% versus the 4.8% headline unemployment rate. People marginally attached to the labor force are those who currently are neither working nor looking for work, but indicate that they want and are available for a job and have looked for work sometime in the past 12 months, just not in the last month. Discouraged workers, a subset of the marginally attached, have given a job market-related reason for not currently looking for work. The U6 rate also accounts for those who are underemployed, 
people who have settled for maybe part-time work but actually want a full-time job. Now let's talk labor force participation. In general, even pre-pandemic, the labor force participation rate, which represents people in the labor force relative to the working age population, has been in decline due to the aging demographics of our country. A larger and larger portion of the population is entering retirement age, leaving the labor force, but still counted as part of the population, and therefore lowering the labor force participation rate. Perhaps a more appropriate measure that removes this impact is the employment-to-population ratio, specifically for ages 25 to 54. This typically is between 75 and 80 percent and currently sits at 78 percent. Over the last two years, we saw at first a sharp drop in the labor force participation rate that hasn't recovered. Last month, after mostly steady gains throughout 2021, the labor force declined again by 183,000 people. Men in the labor force, however, actually increased for the month, while 309,000 women over the age of 20 left the labor force last month, resulting in a 0.3% drop in the labor force participation rate for women over 20 to 57.1%, a rate not seen since the late 1980s. This compares to a 70% participation rate for men over 20. This labor force participation rate decline translates to lower levels of employment today versus the pre-pandemic December 2019 peak for women in almost every age category. But because they have not only left their jobs but left the labor force as well, it doesn't translate to higher unemployment rates. In every age bracket, men have a higher reported unemployment rate than women, despite the fact that absolute employment levels for women are down more. A potential explanation for this phenomenon? Despite the gains made in the workforce, women remain primary caregivers in most households. The pandemic has created a shortage in childcare, and there is still a relatively unstable school situation, despite schools being largely reopened nationwide. While schools may be open, as a mother, I personally can attest to the fact that at any moment, the school can call and tell me my child has been exposed to COVID and needs to be home for as long as 10 days. In the last two weeks alone, I've received at least five COVID emails from my kids' schools, and that's in a state with extremely high vaccination rates and mass mandates in schools. None of the cases impacted my children, but they just as easily could have. And that's not a stable, reliable situation you can count on to go back to work in. Anecdotally, I've heard from many mothers, including some of you, who left or lost their jobs during the pandemic and have yet to return due to needing to provide care for your children. Some have lost their own parents to COVID who are also their child care. Overall childcare shortages have also driven up the cost of childcare so much that it may make returning to work less economical for some families. Another element, female-dominated industries like healthcare and education were also among the first industries to implement vaccine mandate deadlines in many states, if not at the federal level, which may also be contributing to labor force exits. As more major companies across industries have announced mandates and deadlines in order to get ahead of President Biden's proposed vaccine mandate,
we may see a broader decline in the labor force in the coming months. Other demographic factors beyond gender, namely race and educational attainment, also result in differences in unemployment rates. These differences often become more pronounced in an economic downturn. By race, Black and Hispanic workers have unemployment rates of 7.9% and 6.3%, 1.9 times and 1.5 times higher than the unemployment rate for white workers. Educational attainment also drives dramatic differences in unemployment rates, which again become more disparate in downturns. Currently, college-educated employees have an unemployment rate of just 2.5%, which indicates a very tight labor market, while those without a high school diploma have unemployment rates more than three times that, at 7.9%. We are also currently seeing a fairly sizable difference in unemployment rates geographically. Regional data comes in at a bit of a lag, so is only available through August, but the Northeast and West had unemployment rates of 6.6 and 6.5% versus just 4.9 and 4.8% in the South and Midwest. We can also further dive into what unemployment actually looks like. As of September, 30% of those unemployed are re-entrants, people returning to the labor force and looking for a job. Another 29% have suffered a permanent job loss and are looking for a new one. Just 10% have voluntarily left their job and another 6% are brand new to the labor force. The balance is made up of people on temporary layoff or people completing temp jobs. We can also look at the duration of unemployment. Currently, there are 2.7 million people who have been unemployed for six months or longer. The good news is that this number continues to decline, but is the one that has the potential for the most severe impact on both economic productivity. Long-term unemployment can lead to discouraged workers, people leaving the labor force altogether, as well as long-term impacts on an individual's earnings potential. Finally, we can look at unemployment by industry. The highest unemployment rate still remains in those sectors most directly impacted by the pandemic, particularly leisure and hospitality, which has an unemployment rate of 7.7%. In terms of numbers of people, the largest number of unemployed people are in leisure and hospitality with a million unemployed, wholesale and retail with 1.1 million, and followed closely by business services and education and health services, which have 0.8 million unemployed each. We remain 5 million jobs below pre-pandemic peak employment levels, and the labor force, those employed and those willing to work and actively looking for jobs, remains 3.2 million people short of pre-pandemic levels. Despite that, we know GDP, our measure of economic output, has surpassed prior peak levels, which means that we are producing as much or more than before as an economy with 5 million fewer people working. We know there is a labor shortage. You can feel it in customer service levels, You can see it in the help wanted signs you see everywhere you go. And the monthly jolts report, which reports job openings and labor turnover, those numbers confirm it too. Job openings are at record numbers. 
that labor shortage is translating into higher wages for those willing to work. Over the last 12 months, hourly wages are up 5.5%. Hours are up 0.3%, which combines for average weekly earnings up 5.8% for non-supervisory workers. This is good news for employees, but likely to also feed in to continued inflation as businesses pass those cost increases along to consumers. Remember that economy, it's all connected. That's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week in the markets, we'll continue to watch the progress in Congress on the Senate's budget reconciliation bill. On the economic front, there are a number of major releases. On Tuesday, the August JOLTS report, reporting job openings, labor turnover, and separations comes out. Wednesday, we'll get the Consumer Price Index for September, an inflation indicator. On Thursday, we'll have our usual weekly jobless claims, and Friday, look for September retail sales, a leading indicator for consumer spending. In addition to all of that, it's also the start of Q3 earnings season, so look for movement in the stock market based on earnings surprises. For more insights on all we discussed today, charts and graphs of all the data points covered, as well as the latest numbers for weekly jobless claims and the pandemic, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Have questions about the economy or your personal finances? Submit a question for the Finance Explained podcast. Look for the link in the show notes anytime and I'll address it on one of our weekly episodes. As always, I so appreciate your support. It is your questions, weekly listening, sharing with friends, and especially your honest and thoughtful reviews that help make Finance Explained possible. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. 